This is Seeds of Truth. Your host is Joe Holcraft, Doctor of Theology of St. John's Catholic Parish and the Sacramento Diocese. If you have a question or would like to support Seeds of Truth Ministries, the website is joeholcraft.org. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our discussion on the book of Exodus. And as I noted in our last time together, I was going to have our station manager with us this evening, Andrew Palmquist. He is going to join me every fourth or fifth week to engage the things that we have been talking about over the past, oh, three to four weeks. So, with that, I do have Andrew with me. Andrew, great to have you with me another evening. Thank you for having me here, Joe. So, Andrew, in our prep time, in our what I like to call pregame huddle, there were a number of things that you brought to my attention that you certainly wanted to talk about, comments, observations, some questions. And uh, honestly, it was your initial questions, your initial comments and observations that had my attention. Mm. So why don't you get us started with that first, that first piece that struck you? Okay, what struck me initially was that typically God's will is expressed during times of crisis, and it almost, to me, it seemed like it's without exception. Mm. And it definitely happens, I mean, with, with Noah, with Abraham, and here with Moses in Exodus. And he, even from his, uh, his conception, <laughs> there, there was turmoil. Yeah, yeah. And it, at, at odds with every everything, perceivable element in his life he's at odds yeah and as as we find that god's still able to express his will even in in against insurmountable odds and that god chooses to do that most often and throughout scripture during times of intense crisis and so it, at the time that moses was born it was illegal for him to be born at the time that he was born the midwives were commanded to kill the babies but the midwives made excuses saying that these Hebrew women don't give birth like Egyptian women. And by the yeah. time they get there, the baby's already been born. Yeah. yeah. And, and then there was, so the, then they changed the rule to say that they have to cast the babies into the river. But again, they put the baby in a basket. Mm-hmm. I think we can kind of follow that train of thought all the way along, even, even with how, uh, how God directed the flow of water to guide that basket. Yeah, there's all sorts of uh, variables going on that when you add them up, you look at it and say, gosh, this could only be God. And Andrew, the point you raise, I love because as you spoke to it in our pregame huddle, in the end, God is going to do his greatest work when times get difficult and we can't Mm. avoid it. And that's where I really want to start because when you look at uh, the word crisis, and I'm glad you brought up the word crisis, because mm. we all have crises in our life, right? When you look at mm-hmm. that word, it comes from a Greek word that translates, and I love this, turning point, decisive point, or that which separates. So 
The whole idea here, Andrew, is that a crisis is a situation where we are made to choose definitively this from that, you know, here or there, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And that's what God desires. He desires the definitive choice. He, he doesn't like the lukewarm, right? That's, that we know from the New Testament. And so once we get underneath, or maybe better said, inside what this word means, we can see this as, as something that's necessary because this is where the choice is made. I think of the word challenge. Why does God give us challenges? Why are we presented with challenges? Well, the word challenge means a calling forth, a, a calling out. We are challenged in our faith in times of crises. And so the question I put before the both of us, Andrew, and all of our listening audience is, okay, we've talked about crisis and challenge. <laughs> what is being challenged? But our relationship with God, where do we stand with God? We look at the situations in our life, Andrew, and we say, why does this happen to me? Why is this going on right now? We look at Jesus and we say to him, why don't you say, as you did in Mark 4.39, peace be still to my tempest wind, Mm. right? And what the Lord says to us is that peace isn't the absence of the storm. But the calm in the storm. Now, you look at the word shalom, a word that means peace, deep interior covenant harmony with God. That is, shalom is no matter what is going on, as long as you're in relationship with God, you're going to be okay. So peace, as it's not the absence of the storm, Andrew, it's really looking into the eye of the storm and with God and in the Holy Spirit saying, Peace, be still. Jesus is saying, oh, there's going to be storms, there's going to be crises. But invite me into that crisis, invite me into that storm, and let me show you how this will draw out the best version of who you are called to be. As you said it, they are necessary. (laughs) They are necessary for conversion and sanctity and holiness. I mean, think about this, Andrew. Maybe you're a mountain climber. Why do we ascend a mountain? To see that broad view, to breathe that new air, and we're willing to deal with all the scars, the bumps, the bruises, the pain, the crises here or there on the way up. Why? Because we're going to breathe that new air. We're going to have access to higher ground. And what God says to us is, invite me in to this storm, and I will give you new eyes to see a broader view, a view that can only be accessed by way of the crises. Look at salvation itself. Look at the cross, the greatest crises in human history, right? (laughs) I mean, you think about it, and there it is. I just think that so many Christians, uh, and maybe not not by any fault of our own, but we seek the opposite. We seek that, Mm. that peace without any storm, and no no conflicts no crisis and that that's what our desire is to live a peaceful life and i guess there's some some good to that you know and at all ways we sh- we should try to be at peace with all men as as much as it's in our control absolutely and as we do that be a people of discernment you know and i'm speaking to everyone here as i'm looking at myself in the mirror on this be a person who comes to understand that each situation is unique to that situation and God is going to be asking something from you that might be different than the previous situation. 
if there were similarities in that situation. In the end, as you look at each situation, each circumstance, each potential trial or conflict, make sure that you're coming to understand how God is inviting you in to be an agent of peace or, or at times, an agent of one who ruffles the feathers if the feathers need to be ruffled. Because conflict brings about unity. The cross brought about the greatest unity. And it's something to be present to. What does Jesus himself say? And this is a tough verse for a lot of people, Andrew. <laughs> but I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Mm, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, Jesus. <laughs> you are the incarnation of peace. Peace is, is the end, one of the end goals of all Christian living. What do you mean to say there? Well, if we're going to live in the spirit of truth, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. And we have to embrace this. That, yeah. We look to Philippians 2.12 in this moment, that we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We talk about crises. Well, let's talk about salvation. That's the bottom line. Look at St. Paul. His whole testimony was born out of one crisis after another, right? And we know his story, and yet he's calling us to a greater holiness. Paul uses his experience to call us out to a greater holiness, to say, hey, There's going to be suffering. There's going to be trials. Let's embrace them for what they are and see that there's a greater thing in mind. Can you think of any example where God's will was accomplished without crisis? Is there any scripture, any story Mm. in the the Bible we find that that God accomplished his will and everyone was at peace and there were no, no wars, no famine, no trouble? Yeah. In studying sacred scripture, if there is, it's not coming to mind. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one person that comes to mind is Joseph, because he's the only figure in the Old Testament that we know didn't err. Mm. Uh, and yet, <laughs> 13, 14 chapters are devoted to the figure of uh, Joseph when we, we, talked about his, uh, we talked about him a lot in our study on the book of Genesis. I think all of our listening audience is aware that there was a whole lot of crises around Joseph. Um, Because it is to say, as you have nailed down, Andrew, you can't get to the other side without crisis, Mm. right? And that's why I speak to ascending the mountain, um, because it is what it is. So Um, when we go back to Exodus chapter 2, we're looking at how how do we navigate those rules that God gives us and still follow the rules of man? So I think that there was some effort made, maybe it was a little bit of creativity, to, to build a basket and, and to cast the child into the river sure. and <laughs> inside of a basket. Yeah, but there's yeah. some of those rules that we say as Christians, we have to follow the rules, but how can we still be at peace with God and, and still follow God's rules and God's laws? And while, while doing so, you know, similar, to, uh, similar to those that sheltered families during the Holocaust, mm. how can we live in our society, watch as man's law is causing what Satan desires, steal, kill, and destroy. Mm, And mm. we can sit back and watch that happen and say, well, we have to live according to man's laws so we don't ourselves end up in jail or or dead. Sure, sure. But so while while honoring man's law, how do we still give give our homage to God and, and, and show, allow God to have his will done throughout the crisis, you know, as, as opposed to running away from it. Well, here, I think, Andrew, I am made to think about Romans chapter 13, verse 1, 
where Paul says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So, on the surface, taken out of context, divorced from the rest of God's revelation, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, one could interpret Romans 13 as the definitive command to always obey human laws because all human laws Mm. come from God. But people of good sense understand that Romans 13 in every passage of the Bible has to be interpreted reasonably. There's a reason why faith and reason are the great cross beams and girders to the whole intellectual tradition of our Christian history, right? So what do I mean to say when I say has to be interpreted reasonably? Well, in light of the whole of Revelation, which includes not only the rest of the Bible, Andrew, but also the natural law, that which can be reasoned as truth, truth as truth. Mm. So the Bible cannot be self-contradictory. I think that's a principle we have to establish when responding to that question. Um, And here I'm thinking of Acts 5, verse 29, where Luke, the author to the book of Acts, which is really part two to his gospel, right? (laughs) He says, we must obey God rather than men. No, wait, Luke. Did you just say we must obey God rather than men? That doesn't totally fit. That's not the perfect glove ball fit to Romans 13.1. Here, we ought to be reminded, I think, Andrew, that early Christians refused to obey Caesar's law requiring them to worship his quote-unquote genius, Mm. right? His human laws. Martin Luther King argued in his famous letter from Birmingham jail that there is a law higher than man's law and that the the higher law must be obeyed. You talked about uh, the Jews. Well, Martin Luther King actually talked about that. He said, uh, with respect to human laws and, and man's laws, can we not reason that Hitler's laws were not from God? Can we not use our reason, Martin Luther King himself said? Mm. Right? German laws required citizens and those under its, its territorial rule, right, to denounce the authorities, people who were harboring Jews. But for some, and I, this is something that really struck me as I was reflecting upon this, Andrew, is that for some, it took time. No, I don't know. We didn't talk about this beforehand necessarily, but the movie Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Oscar Schindler, uh, who was a famous industrialist in uh, Poland, businessman, he joined the Nazi party for political uh, reasons for practical purposes. He wanted to build his industry. He wanted to build up his warehouse. So he was hiring Jews. Well, Jews got wind of this. And so over time, he started to hire more Jews. And over time, he began to see, even as a Nazi businessman, that what they were doing was wrong. And Schindler's List, the movie itself, beautifully portrays his conversion. And I bring this into play, Andrew, because even the hardest of hearts can come to see that by virtue of faith and reason, what is right versus what is wrong. And so you can navigate man's laws, but in the end, to the person of faith, to the person who listens to their conscience, they're going to see things for what they are. And to World War II, again, Oscar Schindler is an example of that. Mm. When you're imagining in Egypt— hundreds of babies being cast into the river, and maybe Moses was the only one in a basket. Maybe some, there were some other ideas. Maybe some, some other babies ended up in baskets, some didn't. But are you imagine Nazi Germany 
thousands and thousands of of Jews being sent away to their deaths in death camps, but Schindler Schindler can save a few. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as as a believer, how do we walk through that pure evil and choose to live next door to an abortion mill or choose yeah. to become a politician and sign bills that we know, yes, it's going to fund programs for pregnant women, but also there's funds in there for abortifacients. Yeah. And so there, there's, and I say that because part of our listeners um, could be near the state capitol in Sacramento. Sure. Sure. And there, these things happen every day. So how do you navigate state laws and man's laws and still be a Christian believer when you're saying almost the lesser of two evils? You're saying that this is necessary. You know, we have to sign this. This is going to help 10, 10 pregnant women are going to get a stroller and they're going to get in, infant formula, but maybe one or two may get abortifacients. Yeah, and St. Augustine in The City of God, his classic work, The City of God, you know, it's always about choosing the highest good. And certainly today, Andrew, there are so many new bioethical questions Mm. that we can get a a specialist to talk about. But to your question, I think the bottom line is we witness to the highest good. I was talking about uh, the first Christians not obeying Caesar. Mm -hmm. It was black and white right, for the first Christians, and we have to be reminded of that. Do we leave, do we flee in protest, or do we take a stand and and kind of, I guess, bend bend to the will of man so that we could save some? Yeah, I mean, I, I take my cue on one hand from Priscilla and Aquila, mm. right? They could have left Rome, you know, Priscilla and Aquila, you know, two great personalities in the book of Acts. Uh, they could have left Rome mm. because of the heavy, heavy persecution, but they chose to stay— knowing knowing that if, if they were to do so, their fate was going to be in the hands of ultimately the Caesar at the time, right? So we see this, of course, in Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. He could have bailed, but he didn't. He stayed, and in staying, he was able to witness, he was able to profess, he was able to bear testimony. Incidentally, Andrew, the word testimony and or witness in the Greek comes from martyria, where we get the word martyr. So maybe uh, implied in that definition is the answer, at least to some extent, for some of us, if not most of us, the answer to the question that we are all called to lay our lives down for Jesus Christ, bearing testimony, bearing witness to the, the truth, beauty, and love of Jesus Christ. <laughs> we live in volatile times. We live uh, here in the state of California where truth is on trial, mm-hmm. right? And as it is, we are called to bear witness in that courtroom to truth. And if that means, and here I speak in, in metaphor, right, or maybe not metaphor <laughs> sooner and later, being sent to the stadium, then this is what we do, because as Tertullian, one of the great church fathers, reminds us, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, the seed of our Christian faith. Christianity exploded because of that witness. I mean, there were 60 a million Romans in first century, first and second century Rome, 33 million. 33 million of 60 million became Christians because of them, the witness of those who laid their life down. 33 million people were, quote-unquote, I believe, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ because of another's witness. Right? So I think we have that call to bear witness, especially in the state of California, especially to life. 
we look at life and, you know, we can't be a human rights activist for anything and not choose life first because it's, it's the foundation to the house, life itself. Mm. And this has to be our priority. There's a lot of other important issues, don't get me wrong, but if we don't get the question of life right and the inherent truth and the dignity of the human person, because everyone is applying the principle of the dignity of, of, of the human person on all these issues, life is first. Mm. Life is first. Joe, do you feel like the Holy Spirit could lead one person one way and the next person maybe the complete opposite way? Yes, and I know this is part of our pregame huddle, so... In that question, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, are you saying, is it possible for, for me or you to be called to go to uh, Georgia or Florida or Iowa because God calls? Yes. And, and that, to me, am I, am I correct? In, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, to me, is a matter of, well, discernment, what I was speaking to earlier. What, what are we getting at here? What's the bottom line, Andrew? Our conscience. Conscience, as Paul spoke to it, is the law inscribed on our heart. According to St. Paul, because he's the first church father, right? According to St. Paul, he says this conscience has to be formed in the revelation of Jesus Christ so that our conscience can make a better decision. So we form ourselves in the revelation of Jesus Christ, and as we do, we can make better decisions. And out from that, out from that formation, can we discern better? And again, the word discernment means coming to understand a situation. We make decisions all the time about a lot of different things every day, right? In that process of making a decision, we draw from past experiences, knowledge, understanding. We're called to ponder like Mary pondered. And uh, yeah, your decision is going to be very different from mine. We both live here in Chico, California, which incidentally has one of the highest abortion Mm -hmm. rates per capita in the whole world. We're talking per capita, Mm. one of the highest abortion rates in the whole world. Until recently, the pregnancy centers, you had to refer for abortion. Yeah. Until until that law changed. I mean, so you can just get a sense of what we're dealing with here in Chico. You live in Chico, I live in Chico, or technically you live Mm -hmm. a little outside Chico, (laughs) for for the sake of this conversation, we both live in Chico. And we're asking the same question, but God's response to our question is going to be different. We take up that conversation with Jesus in principle, and that's what's the same, right? What we're talking about right now in principle. But you know, based upon who you are and your past experiences, and based upon who I am and my past experiences, God is going to call us to different places. Jesus calls us to witness to truth, beauty, and love wherever we go. Yeah. Right? So long as we're here in Chico, California, it's of the highest priority to bear witness to life itself. Yeah. To answer your question, yes there can be that other option. And we see the example in the New Testament, Mary and Joseph, they are warned in the middle of the night by an angel to flee, and they flee to Egypt. And we see the Old Testament, Moses is raised as potentially an heir to the throne (laughs) as the Pharaoh's daughter raises him as her own son. Yeah. There's something called typology, which is, well, what it sounds like, the study of types. Moses was a type of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, Old Testament Joseph was a type of New Testament Joseph, right? Where mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, God's people are saved by way of a dream, right? Mm-hmm. In the New Testament, humanity is saved by way of a dream, right? God's people are saved by way of a dream. So this is a very rich principle in sacred scripture. 
And as you raise that point, I go to typology because if we're going to better understand how God works in salvation history, how, as we kickstarted a program with Andrew, you can't achieve or gain, acquire salvation without the crisis, look at typology. Look at how God worked in the Old Testament. Look at how God worked in the New Testament. And look at how there's an intelligible coordination, this kind of seamless unity, this symmetry between the old and new. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you search the Old Testament because in the narrative of the Old Testament, in the drama of the Old Testament, it points to me, the fulfillment to the promise, and at once the transformation of what this fulfillment is all about, the transformation of, of souls, right? And so typology lends itself to a deeper understanding of how God works in salvation history, which points, Andrew, to you and I in all of our crises. Once we see that God writes straight with crooked lines, we can look at all of our crooked ways and say, yeah, God, (laughs) be God because I don't understand this. And he will. He'll straighten the path and he'll show us the way. We just have to open our hearts to him and understand that in the end, as we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling, we do so crying out to him. Peace isn't the absence of the storm, but crying out in you, Mm. peace to the storm. Mm, Amen. And therein lies our victory. Therein lies our victory. Yeah, we, We see Moses, who God gives the law to, and when he's one day old, he's already faced death multiple times. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's beautifully said. That's beautifully said, Andrew. And we look at what it means to be delivered in our own life. Mm-hmm. A deliverance that is about every day. You know, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, put on the cloth of Christ. And when you translate that Greek, he's basically saying, just like you get dressed every day, put on the garment of virtue every day. Mm-hmm. The garment of Christ. And this is what we do calling upon our Lord and Savior each and every day in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Come, invade my day. All of the crises, all of the trials, all of my suffering, invade it. Help me make sense of it. And again, in that, you say, I say, we all say, peace, Mm. be still. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.